Hi, this is Dave, and you're listening to Reading with My Brothers. Hey, brother, thanks for joining me today. Um, sorry for the delay in getting some episodes out, but uh, we're back again to take a look at sections 13 to 14 of the Godly Man's Picture Drawn with a Scripture, pe- scripture Pencil by Thomas Watson. Um, today we're looking at a godly man as a sincere man, and then a godly man as a heavenly man. So let's get into it. Section 13. A godly man is a sincere man. Quote, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whose spirit there is no guile. John 1, The word for sincere, hapluos, signifies without pleats or folds. A godly man is plain-hearted, having no subtle subterfuges. Religion is the livery a godly man wears, and this livery is lined with sincerity. Question. In what does the godly man's sincerity appear? Answer 1. The godly man is what he seems to be. He is a Jew inwardly. Romans 2.29 Grace runs through his heart, as silver through the veins of the earth. The hypocrite is not what he seems. A picture is like a man, but it lacks breath. The hypocrite is an effigy, a picture. He does not breathe forth sanctity. He is only like an angel on a signpost. A godly man answers to his profession, as the transcript to the original. Answer 2. The godly man strives to approve himself to God in everything. Quote, We labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. 2 Corinthians 5.9 it is better to have God approve than the world applaud. Those who ran in the Olympic race strove to have the approval of the judge and umpire of the race. There is a time coming shortly when a smile from God's face will be infinitely better than all the applause of men. How sweet that word will be. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. A godly man is ambitious of God's testimonial letters. The hypocrite desires the praise of men. Saul was for the approval of the people, 1 Samuel 15.30. A godly man approves his heart to God, who is both the spectator and the judge. Answer 3. The godly man is ingenuous in laying open his sins. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. Psalm 32.5. The hypocrite veils and smothers his sin. He does not cut off his sin, but conceals it. Like a patient that has some loathsome disease in his body, he would rather die than confess his disease. But a godly man's sincerity is seen in this. He will confess and shame himself for sin. Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. 2 Samuel 24, 17. No, a child of God will confess sin in particular. An unsound Christian will confess sin wholesale. He will acknowledge he is a sinner in general, Whereas David does, as it were, point with his finger to the sore, I have done this evil. Psalm 51.4 He does not say, I have done evil, but this evil. He points at his blood guiltiness. Answer 4 The godly man has blessed designs in all he does. He propounds this objective in every ordinance, that he may have more acquaintance with God and bring more glory to God. As the herb heliotropium turns about according to the motion of the sun, so a godly man's actions all move toward the glory of God. 
It is an axiom in philosophy. The means are in order to the end. A godly man's praying and worshiping is so that he may honor God. Though he shoots short, yet he takes correct aim. The hypocrite thinks of nothing but self-interest. The sails of his mill move only when the wind of promotion blows. He never dives into the waters of the sanctuary except to fetch up a piece of gold from the bottom. Answer 5. The godly man abhors dissimulation with men. His heart goes along with his tongue. He cannot flatter and hate, commend and censure. Psalm 28.3. Let love be without dissimulation. Romans 12.9. Dissembled love is worse than hatred. Counterfeiting of friendship is no better than a lie. Psalm 78.36. For there is a pretense of that which is not. Many are like Joab. He took Amasa by the beard to kiss him and smote him with his sword in the fifth rib, and he died. 2 Samuel 20, verses 9 and 10. Horrible poisons lie hidden under sweet honey. There is a river in Spain where the fish seem to be of a golden color, but take them out of the water and they are like other fish. All is not gold that glitters. There are some who pretend much kindness, but they are like great veins which have little blood. If you lean upon them, they're like a leg out of joint. For my part, I seriously question a man's sincerity with God if he flatters and lies to his friend. Quote, he that hideth hatred with lying lips is a fool. Proverbs 10.8 By all that has been said, we may test whether we have this mark of a godly man, being sincere. Sincerity, as I conceive it, is not strictly a grace, but rather the ingredient of every grace. Sincerity is that which qualifies grace, and without which grace is not true. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Ephesians 6.24 Sincerity qualifies our love. Sincerity is to grace what the blood and spirits are to the body. There can be no life without the blood, so no grace without sincerity. Use As we would be reputed godly, let us strive for this characteristic of sincerity. 1. Sincerity renders us lovely in God's eyes. God says of the sincere soul, as of Zion, This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Psalm 132, verse 14. A sincere heart is God's paradise of delight. Noah found grace in God's eyes. Why, what did God see in Noah? He was girt with the girdle of sincerity. Genesis 6, 9. Noah was perfect in his generation. Truth resembles God, and when God sees a sincere heart, he sees his own image, and he cannot choose but fall in love with it. He that is upright in his way is God's delight. Proverbs 17.20 2. Sincerity makes our services find acceptance with God. The Church of Philadelphia had only a little strength. Her grace was weak, her service is slender, yet of all the churches Christ wrote to, he found the least fault with her. What was the reason? Because she was most sincere. Quote, Thou hast kept fast my word, and hast not denied my name. Revelation 3.8 Though we cannot pay God all we owe, yet a little in current coin is accepted. God takes sincerity for full payment. A little gold, though rusty, is better than alchemy, be it never so bright. A little sincerity, though rusted over with many infirmities, is of more value with God than all the glorious flourishes of hypocrites. Number three, 
Sincerity is our safety. False hearts that will step out of God's way and use carnal policy when they think they are most safe are least secure. He that walketh uprightly walketh surely. Proverbs 10.9 A sincere Christian will do nothing but what the word warrants, and that is safe as to the conscience. No, often the Lord takes care of the outward safety of those who are upright in their way. I laid me down and slept. Psalm 3.5 David was now beleaguered by enemies, yet God so encamped about him by his providence that he could sleep as securely as in a garrison. The Lord sustained me. The only way to be safe is to be sincere. Number four, sincerity is gospel perfection. Quote, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man? Job 1.8 Though a Christian is full of infirmities and like a child that is put out to nurse, weak and feeble, God still looks on him as if he were completely righteous. Every true saint has the thummim of perfection on his breastplate. Number five, sincerity is what the devil attacks most. Satan's spite was not so much at Job's estate as his integrity. He would have wrested the shield of sincerity from him, but Job held that fast. Job 27.6 A thief does not fight for an empty purse, but for money. The devil would have robbed Job of the jewel of a good conscience, and then he would have been poor Job indeed. Satan does not oppose profession, but sincerity. Let men go to church and make glorious pretenses of holiness. Satan does not oppose this. This does him no hurt and them no good. But if men were to be sincerely pious, then Satan musters up all his forces against them. Now what the devil most assaults, we must most strive to maintain. Sincerity is our fort royal, where our chief treasure lies. This fort is most shot at, Therefore, let us be more careful to preserve it. While a man keeps his castle, his castle will keep him. While we keep sincerity, sincerity will keep us. Number six. Sincerity is the beauty of a Christian. Wherein does the beauty of a diamond lie but in this, that it is a true diamond? If it is a counterfeit, it's worth nothing. So wherein does the beauty of a Christian lie but in this, that he has truth in his inward parts? Psalm 51, six. Sincerity is a Christian's ensign of glory. It is both his breastplate to defend him and his crown to adorn him. Number seven, the vileness of hypocrisy. The Lord would have no leaven offered up in sacrifice. Leaven typified hypocrisy. Luke 12.1 The hypocrite does the devil double service. Under the visor of piety, he can sin more and be less suspected. Quote, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Matthew twenty three fourteen. Who would think that those who pray for so many hours on end would be guilty of extortion? Who would suspect of false weights the man who has the Bible so often in his hand? Who would think that the one who seems to fear an oath would slander? Hypocrites are the worst sort of sinners. They reflect infinite dishonor upon religion. Hypocrisy, for the most part, ends in scandal, and that brings an evil report on the ways of God. One man breaking in renders the honest suspect. One scandalous hypocrite makes the world suspect that all professing Christians are like him. The hypocrite was born to spite religion and bring it into disrepute. The hypocrite is a liar. He worships God with his knee, 
and his passions with his heart, like those who feared the Lord and served their own gods. 2 Kings 17.33 The hypocrite is an impudent sinner. He knows his heart is false, yet he goes on. Judas knew himself to be a hypocrite. He asked, Master, is it I? Christ replies, Thou hast said it. Matthew 26.25 Yet so shameless was he as to persist in his falseness and betray Christ. All the plagues and curses written in the book of God are the hypocrite's portion. Hell is his place of rendezvous. Matthew 24, 51. Hypocrites are the chief guests the devil expects, and he will make them as welcome as fire and brimstone can make them. Number eight. If the heart is sincere, God will wink at many failings. Quote, he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Numbers 23:21. God's love does not make him blind. He can see infirmities. But how? Not with an eye of revenge, but pity. As a physician sees a disease in his patient so as to heal him. God does not see iniquity in Jacob so as to destroy him, but to heal him. He went on frowardly. I have seen his ways and will heal him. Isaiah 57, 17 and 18. How much pride, vanity, passion does the Lord pass by in his sincere ones? He sees the integrity and pardons the infirmity. How much God overlooked in Asa. The high places were never removed, yet it is said, the heart of Asa was perfect all his days. 2 Chronicles 15, 17. We esteem a picture that was not drawn full length. So though the graces of God's people are not drawn to their full length, no, many have scars, and spots. Having yet something of God in sincerity, they shall find mercy. God loves the sincere and is the nature of love to cover infirmity. Number nine. Nothing but sincerity will give us comfort in an hour of trouble. King Hezekiah thought he was dying, yet this revived him that conscience drew up a certificate for him. Quote, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before thee in truth. Isaiah 38.3 Sincerity is the best flower in his crown. What a golden shield this will be against Satan. When he roars at us by his temptations or sets our sins before us on our deathbed, then we shall answer, It is true, Satan. These have been our misdeeds, but we have bewailed them. If we have sinned, it was against the bent and purpose of our heart. This will stop the devil's mouth make him retreat. Therefore, strive for this jewel of sincerity. If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. 1 John 3.21 If we are cleared at the petty sessions in our conscience, then we may be confident we shall be acquitted at the great assizes on the day of judgment. Section 14. A godly man is a heavenly man. Heaven is in him before he is in heaven. The Greek word for saint, hagios, signifies a man taken away from the earth. A person may live in one place yet belong to another. He may live in Spain yet be a free citizen of England. Pomponius lived in Athens yet was a citizen of Rome. So a godly man is a while in the world, but he belongs to the Jerusalem above. That is the place to which he aspires. Every day is Ascension Day with a believer. 
The saints are called stars for their sublimity. They have gone above into the upper region. The way of life is above to the wise. Proverbs 15.24 A godly man is heavenly in six ways. One, in his election. Two, in his disposition. Three, in his communication. Four, in his actions. Five, in his expectation. And six, in his conduct. Number one, a godly man is heavenly in his election. He chooses heavenly objects. David chose to be a resident in God's house, Psalm 84.10. A godly person chooses Christ and grace before the most illustrious things under the sun. What a man is, that is his choice. And this choosing of God is best seen in a critical hour. When Christ and the world come into competition, and we part with the world to keep Christ in a good conscience, that is a sign we have chosen the better part. Luke 10.42 Number two, a godly man is heavenly in his disposition. He sets his affections on things above, Colossians 3.2. He sends his heart to heaven before he gets there. He looks upon the world as but a beautiful prison, and he cannot be much in love with his fetters, though they are made of gold. A holy person contemplates glory and eternity. His desires have got wings and have fled to heaven. Grace is in the heart like fire, which makes it spark upward divine desires and exclamations. Number three, a godly man is heavenly in his communication. His words are sprinkled with salt to season others, Colossians 4, 6. As soon as Christ had risen from the grave, he was speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, Acts 1, 3. No sooner has a man risen from the grave of unregeneracy than he is speaking of heaven, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, Ecclesiastes 10.12. He speaks in such a heavenly manner as if he were already in heaven. The love he has for God will not allow him to be silent. The spouse being sick of love, her tongue was like the pen of a ready writer. Quote, My beloved is white and ruddy. His head is as the most fine gold. Song of Solomon 5.10-11 and 11. There is wine in the house. The bush will be hung outside. And where there is a principle of godliness in the heart, it will vent itself at the lips. The bush will be hung up. How can they be termed godly? First, who are possessed by a dumb devil. They never have any good discourse. They are fluent and discursive enough in secular things. They can speak of their wares and drugs. They can tell what good a crop they have. But in matters of religion, they are as if their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. There are many people in whose company you cannot tell what to make of them, whether they are Turks or atheists, for they never speak a word of Christ. How can they be termed godly whose tongues are set on fire by hell? Their lips do not drop honey, but poison to the defiling of others. Plutarch says that speech ought to be like gold, which is of most value when it has the least dross in it. Oh, the unclean malicious words that some people utter. What an unsavory stench comes from these dunghills. Those lips that gallop so fast in sin need David's bridle, Psalm 39.1. Can the body be healthy when the tongue is black? Can the heart be holy when the devil is in the lips? A godly man speaks the language of Canaan. They that feared the Lord spake often to one another, Malachi 3.16. Number four, a godly man is heavenly in his actions. The motions of the planets are celestial. A godly man is sublime and sacred in his motions. 
He works out salvation. He puts forth all his strength, as they did in the Greek Olympics, so that he may obtain the garland made of flowers of paradise. He prays, fasts, watches. He offers violence to heaven. He is divinely actuated. He carries on God's interest in the world. He does angels' work. He is seraphic in his actions. Number five, a godly man is heavenly in his expectation. His hopes are above the world, Psalm 39, 7. In hope of eternal life, Titus 1, 2. A godly man casts anchor within the veil. He hopes to have his fetters of sin filed off. He hopes for such things as I have not seen. He hopes for a kingdom when he dies, a kingdom promised by the Father, purchased by the Son, assured by the Holy Ghost. As an heir lives in hope of the time when such a great estate shall fall to him, so a child of God, who is a co-heir with Christ, hopes for glory. This hope comforts him in all varieties of condition. Quote, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5.2 First, this hope comforts a godly man in affliction. Hope lightens and sweetens the most severe dispensations. A child of God can laugh with tears in his eyes. The time is shortly coming when the cross shall be taken off his shoulders and a crown set on his head. A saint at present is miserable with a thousand troubles. In an instant he will be clothed with robes of immortality and advanced above seraphim. Second, this hope comforts a godly man in death. The righteous have hope in his death. Proverbs 14, 32. If one should ask a dying saint, when all his earthly comforts have gone, what he had left, he would say, the helmet of hope. I read of a woman martyr who, when the persecutors commanded that her breasts should be cut off, said, Tyrant, do your worst. I have two breasts which you cannot touch, one of faith and the other of hope. A soul that has this blessed hope is above the desire of life or the fear of death. Would anyone be troubled at exchanging a poor lease for an inheritance that will be for him and his heirs? Who would worry about parting with life, which is a lease that will soon run out to be possessed of a glorious inheritance and light? Number six, a godly man is heavenly in his conduct. He casts such a luster of holiness as adorns his profession. He lives as if he has seen the Lord with his bodily eyes. What zeal, sanctity, humility shines forth in his life? A godly person emulates not only the angels, but imitates Christ himself, 1 John 2, 6. The Macedonians celebrate the birth, birthday of Alexander, on which day they wear his picture around their necks, set with pearl and rich jewels. So a godly man carries the lively picture of Christ about him in the heavenliness of his deportment. Quote, our conversation is in heaven, Philippians 3, 20. Use number one. Those who are eaten up with the world will be rejected as ungodly at the bar of judgment. To be godly and earthly is a contradiction. Quote, For many walk, of whom I now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, who mind earthly things. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. We read that the earth swallowed up Korah alive. Number 1632. This judgment is on many. The earth swallows up their time, thoughts, and discourse. They are buried twice. Their hearts are buried in the earth before their bodies. How sad it is that the soul, that princely thing, 
which is made for communion, communion with God and angels, should be put to the mill to grind and made a slave to the earth. How like the prodigal the soul has become, choosing rather to converse with swine and feed upon husks than to aspire after communion with the blessed deity. Thus does Satan befool men and keep them from heaven by making them seek a heaven here. Use number two. As we would prove ourselves to be born of God, let us be of a sublime heavenly temper. We shall never go to heaven when we die unless we are in heaven while we live. That we may be more noble and raised in our affections, let us seriously weigh these four considerations. Number one, God himself sounds a retreat to us to call us off the world. Love not the world, 1 John 2.15. We may use it as a posy of flowers to smell, but it must not lie like a bundle of myrrh between our breasts. Quote, be not conformed to this world, Romans 12.2. Do not hunt after its honors and profits. God's providences, like his precepts, are to beat us off the world. Why does he send war and epidemics? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Surely dying times are to make men die to the world. Second, consider how much below a Christian it is to be earthly-minded. We sometimes laugh at children when we see them busying themselves with toys, blowing bubbles in the air out of a shell, kissing their dolls, etc., when in the meantime we do the same. At death, what will all the world be which we so hug and kiss but like a rag doll? It will yield us no more comfort then. How far it is below a heaven-born soul to be taken up with these things. No, when such as profess to be ennobled with the principle of piety, and to have their hopes above, have their hearts below, how they disparage their heavenly calling, and spot their silver wings of grace by beliming them with earth. Third, Consider what a poor, contemptible thing the world is. It is not worth setting the affections on. It cannot fill the heart. If Satan should take a Christian up to the mount of temptation and show him all the kingdoms and glory of the world, what could he show him but a fancy, an apparition? Nothing here can be proportionate to the immense soul of man. Quote, In the fullness of his sufficiency he shall be in straits. Job 20.22 here is want in plenty. The creature will no more fill the soul than a drop will fill the bucket, and that little sweet we suck from the creature is intermixed with some bitterness, like that cup which the, which the Jews gave Christ. Quote, they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh. Mark 15.23 And this imperfect sweet will not last long. The world passeth away. 1 John 2.17 The creature merely salutes us and is soon on the wing. The world rings changes. It is never constant, except in its disappointments. How quickly we may remove our lodgings and make our pillow in the dust. The world is but a great inn where we are to stay a night or two and be gone. What madness it is to set our heart upon our inn as to forget our home. Fourth, consider what a glorious place heaven is. We read of an angel coming down from heaven who set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Revelation 10.2 
Had we only once been in heaven and viewed its superlative glory, how we might in holy scorn trample with one foot upon the earth and with the other foot upon the sea. Heaven is called a better country, quote, but now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly, Hebrews 1.16. Heaven is said to be a better country in opposition to the country where we are now staying. What should we seek but that better country? Question. In what sense is heaven a better country? Answer one. In that country above, there are better delights. There's the tree of life, the rivers of pleasure. There is amazing beauty, unsearchable riches. There are the delights of the angels. There is the flower of joy fully blown. There is more than we can ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. There is glory in its full dimensions and beyond all hyperbole. Answer two. In that country, there is a better dwelling house. First, it is a house not made with hands, 2 Corinthians 5.1. To denote its excellence, there was never any house but was made with hands, but the house above surpasses the art of man or angel. None besides God could lay a stone in that building. Second, it is eternal in the heavens. It is not a guest house, but a mansion house. It is a house that will never be out of repair. Quote, Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars, Proverbs 9.1, which can never molder. Answer 3. In that country there are better provisions. In our Father's house there is bread enough. Heaven was typified by Canaan, which flowed with milk and honey. There is the royal feast, the spiced wine, there is angels' food. There they serve up those rare foods and dainties such as exceed not only our expressions but our faith. Answer number four. In that country, there is better society. There is God, blessed forever. How infinitely sweet and ravishing will the smile of his face be. The king's presence makes the court. There are the glorious cherubim. In this terrestrial country where we now live, we are among wolves and serpents. In the country above, we shall be among angels. There are the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews 12.23 here the people of God are clouded with infirmities. We see them with spots on their faces. They're full of pride, passion, censoriousness. In that Jerusalem above, we shall see them in their royal attire, decked with unparalleled beauty, not having the least tincture or shadow of sin on them. Answer 5. In that country, there is better air to breathe in. We go into the country for air. The best air is only to be had in that better country. First, it is more temperate air. The climate is calm and moderate. We shall neither freeze with the cold nor faint with the heat. Second, it's a brighter air. There's a better light shining there. The sun of righteousness enlightens that horizon with his glorious beams. Quote, the lamb is the light thereof. Revelation 21:23. Third, it is, it is a purer air. The fens, which are full of black vapors, we count a bad air and unwholesome to live in. This world is a place of bogs and fens where the noxious vapors of sin arise, which make it pestilential and unwholesome to live in. But in that country, above, there are none of these vapors but a sweet perfume of holiness. There is the smell of the orange tree and the pomegranate. There is the myrrh and cassia coming from Christ, which sends forth a most odiferous scent. Answer 6. In that country there is a better soil, 
The land or soil is better, one for its altitude, the earth lying low is of a baser pedigree. The element which is nearest heaven is purer and most excellent, like that fire. The country above is the high country. It is seated far above all visible orbs. Psalm 24.3 Second, for its fertility, it bears a richer crop. The richest harvest on earth is the golden harvest, but the country above yields noble commodities. There are pearls celestial. There is the spiritual vine. There is the honeycomb of God's love dropping. There is the water of life, the hidden manna. There is fruit that does not rot, flowers that never fade. There is a crop which cannot be totally reaped. It will always be reaping time in heaven. And all this the land yields without the labor of plowing and sowing. Third, for its inoffensiveness. There are no briars there. The world is a wilderness where there are wicked men, and the best of them is a briar. Micah 7, 4. They tear the people of God and their spiritual liberties, but in the country above, there's not one briar to be seen. All the briars are burned. Fourth, for the rarity of the prospect. All that a man sees there is his own. I count that the best prospect where a man can see the furthest on his own ground. Answer 7. In that country, there is better unity. All the inhabitants are knit together in love. The poisonous weed of malice does not grow there. There's harmony without division and charity without envy. In that country above, as in Solomon's temple, no noise of hammer is heard. Answer 8. In that country, there is better employment. While we are here, we are complaining of our wants, weeping over sins. There, we shall be praising God. How the birds of paradise will chirp when they are in that celestial country. There, the morning stars will sing together, and all the saints of God will shout for joy. Oh, what should we aspire after but this country above? Such as have their eyes opened will see that it infinitely excels. An ignorant man looks at a star and appears to him like a little silver spot. But the astronomer, who has his instrument to judge the dimension of a star, knows it to be many degrees bigger than the earth. So a natural man hears of the heavenly country that is very glorious, but it is at a great distance. Because he hath not a spirit of discernment, the world looks bigger in his eye. But such as are spiritual artists who have the instrument of faith to judge heaven will say it is by far the better country, and they will hasten there with the sails of desire. My brother, I hope these passages stir you like they stir me. First, the Description of the sincere man challenges me to make sure that my outward professions are consistent with the inward reality of my heart and vice versa. I hope that as I grow in sanctification, I grow to be a more honest man, a more sincere man. The greatest friends I've ever had, the, the men that I have come to love and trust as my brothers have been the ones with whom I can be completely comfortable because I know that there's nothing they're holding back from me. There's not a, a sense of they have a, a worse opinion of me than they let on or that somehow they will mock me behind my back. But I know that what you see is what you get. 
And I think this is the challenge that Thomas Watson lays down for us in that first section, that we be men of integrity, that integrity, that word integrity, in a sense, talks about being whole and without cracks or divisions. You're, you're all of one piece, right? So integrity in, in this case means that you are consistent throughout. There's no gaps or cracks or seams, but what you see on the outside comes from what you see on the inside. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? That it's out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So often when we say something foolish or out of anger, we, we often tend to, I don't know about you, but I tend to follow it up with, oh, that's not me. I don't mean to say that. That's not me. But Jesus clearly teaches us that it is you, that what comes out of your mouth is in your heart, whether you like to admit it or not. So the prayer for us as we consider these things is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, a revealing sin to us so that we can confess it, we can be sincere men, men of integrity, men of wholeness, men who are consistent. And that consistency will be a, uh, an evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the conver conversion that we profess. Um, another comment that he made uh, that I, I found it to be really encouraging, really helpful. Early on, he says that the godly man is ingenuous to, in laying open his sins, that the hypocrite veils and smothers his sin. This is a huge, a huge thing. Because when we, when we are quick to confess our sin, it proves that we truly believe that the gospel is true. See, if you profess that you believe the gospel, you believe the good news that Jesus paid for your sin, that all of your guilt and your shame was heaped upon him and that was satisfied, it was paid for, it was covered, it was taken away on the cross, then we don't have to hide our sin from others, especially other believers. And this doesn't mean that we, we brag about our sin, we flash around our sin and, and, and talk about it as if it's a, a badge of honor. But at the same time, we are quick to confess and we are quick to admit, you know what? I sinned there. I'm sorry. I find it interesting working in a, in a secular environment that the times when I most shock my coworkers is when I repent. The first time I remember doing it that I had lost my temper during a conversation the day before and at coffee the next morning, I said, you know what guys, yesterday I was out of line. I was uh, mouthing off and that was unkind and that's not who I want to be. And that's not, that doesn't represent, you know, what I believe is true about, about Christ. And so I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? And the whole environment of the, of the break room changed for a moment as if everyone were kind of taken aback, like, what is that? And I, I think that at that moment, I realized that Christians have this wild, like superpower to stun unbelievers with our humility and our repentance, you know, that, and it's just, it's so the way of Christ that we are most powerful and influential 
when we are humble and sincere and repentant. And that is amazing to me. So I would encourage you, if you struggle with repentance, if you struggle with admitting your faults, I would encourage you for the sake of your sincerity to be honest with yourself and honest with others and open about your weaknesses, open about your failures in the right context, in the right way. Again, not trying to glory in your sins, but trying to, to, to elevate the forgiveness and the grace of Christ through being honest about where you fall short. That sincerity will be a remarkable thing to the people around you. Now, in terms of heavenly mindset, this one got me too, because I have to confess, brother, so often all of my thoughts, all of my uh, daily processes and, and the kind of the conversations, the things that I talk about, they're all about this world. They're all about this, you know, the projects I'm working on, interactions I'm having at work, things I'm reading, interesting things I'm hearing on podcasts or whatever. And it's all very, you know, worldly focused, not in a, in a sinful or evil way or a lascivious way or something like that, but that it's all in focused on this life and not the life to come. And, and I think part of that is because so often we don't really take the time to consider the life to come. We don't really take the time to, to sit and stop and, and, and ponder and meditate on what we have ahead of us. Because if we did, it would be on our lips more. I think it's a perfect example, you know, when people talk about, you know, when you say so you, you, you try a new restaurant that you really enjoy, the service was great, the food was good, the ambiance was inviting, the price was right. It was just a great experience. Odds are, you're going to tell your friends about it. You're going to talk about it. You're going to say, hey, remember that one time we went to that place? It was so great. I remember on a work trip uh, to Boston, now over a decade ago, uh, we had an amazing, I don't know how many, 15 course meal maybe of small plates at a, a seafood restaurant. And it was it was a $75 like tasting menu in you didn't, it was a chef's, chef's menu. So you didn't order it. You didn't know what you were going to expect. And so each, you know, with each new course, they'd bring out your utensils first, they'd clear the old stuff, they'd bring out your utensils, and like you could try to figure out, okay, so they brought us out a knife, so maybe it's a meat course, something like that. And it was just this wonderful experience I shared with my coworkers over the course of about three hours on an evening. And I'll tell you what, I've had more conversations about that meal with my coworkers in the 10 years since then than I think I've had about anything else that we've ever done together as a group. Um, it's the, the, these remarkable experiences are things that we talk about and savor and share. And these are the stories we tell, but y'all the fancy meal that I had over 10 years ago is nothing compared to the feast that awaits us and, and how silly and shallow. I mean, it, Thomas hits it right on the head. We laugh. And our kids, I have I have little ones, as as you know, and and they get so serious about their play, and and they're they're feeding you know doing the tea party for the dolls, and it's got to be just perfect. And 
one of my daughters, if, if it's not, if it's not perfectly laid out and done, she gets really anxious and upset. And, and I have to, I, I, I find myself encouraging her and like, sweetheart, it's, it's okay. It's fine. It's, it's okay. It's just this one. It's okay. And she gets really upset, but my, my heavens, how often, how often do we do the same thing? Do we get so worked up and bent out of shape about the things in this life that are so temporary? And it has to, we think it has to be perfect. My house has to be perfectly set up and my car and my job and my goals and plans and this and that. And it's all mud pies and rag dolls and toy cups. And it doesn't last. It was a good reminder at the end of that section. We, we are here as travelers staying in an inn. We don't need to worry about painting the walls. I mean, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy good things. I mean, after all, the, the blessing of being made in the image of God, one of them is that we are creative and we, make, we help make order out of chaos. And in so doing, we reflect God's image, right? As his image bearers, uh, we, we work the land that he has given us in this life. But at the same time, we recognize all of this could be gone. I mean, let's... Honestly, brothers, there's there's no guarantee I'm going to finish this podcast if the Lord decides he's going to take me. You know, I can't be worried about that. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to try to do a good job. But this is temporary. You know, we can make plans. We can look to the future. We can be diligent and we can be, uh, you know, think about uh, laying the groundwork for for the rest of our lives and the, and the benefit and blessing of our children and our children's children. But at the end of the day. This is a this is a vapor. I mean, I am I'm I'm, I'm forty two years old. Uh, I turned forty three in a couple of weeks, and in my mind, I'm still in my twenties. You know, I'm 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 remembering things and I'm being reminded of things in conversations with friends, and I realize, oh yeah, that happened twenty years ago, twenty five years ago. Time passes so quickly, and I know some of you. Uh, who are listening, you know, brother, you, you, you know that better than I do, I'm, I'm sure. But can I just encourage you, especially if you are at the point in your life where there's much more life behind you than in front of you, and you are seeking to be faithful with what you have left, first of all, thank you. Thank you, sincerely. Thank you. I mean, I know, I, I know who's, who's been listening to this. I, I can see your faces in my mind. Thank you, brothers. Because your, your faithfulness and your example and your steadfastness, whether that's through the ups and downs of work and marriage and parenting, whether it's your faithfulness through illness, it is an encouragement to me. And it's a reminder to me that no matter what happens, this all ends in glory. And so we have hope. So let us be heavenly minded men who are looking towards that better country and the city not built with hands. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that 
my brother would be encouraged by this. That this discussion of the speed of time passing and the brevity of life would not be a discouragement to us as it would be to a, to a pagan man. Rather, I pray this is an encouragement to us to do good work while we have time, while the sun is still shining, while there is yet light. But knowing that when the night falls and when the final rest comes, we go to our rest to awake in a glorious kingdom that far outshines any trinkets and trifles we may be tempted to pursue in this middle stage, in this way station, this inn that we're staying at for a short time. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be hardworking and diligent with what you've given us to do in this uh, shadow land as we look forward to the country of eternal sun. And as we do so, help us to be sincere men, honest men, men of integrity, fully unified, and walking faithfully and humbly before the face of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, brother, go forth. Be strong. Be courageous. Know that your God is with you. Go do great things. God bless you.